Welcome to Brown Bag Religion, the MF Casser podcast. Welcome back from Easter holiday to everyone, and thank you for joining us today uh, for this week's MF Casser lunch. And I am very happy to present to you um, uh, a, a dear colleague uh, through many years, Lena Lipe, who is professor of art history and medievalist, as myself. Uh, and she has been many years in, in Norway, in the University of Tromsø and Oslo, and now she is uh, in her native Sweden uh, uh, at the Linnaeus University in Växjö. Uh, Lena has recently written a very interesting book, which I have a copy of here, <laughs> about relics uh, in uh, Scandinavia uh, in the Middle Ages. And this this is a topic that has been very uh, understudied uh, until Lena has uh, taken on the task of uh, cataloging these, all these things that have obviously disappeared from, from, uh, from our view and the view of historians too uh, after the Reformation in the 16th century. So Lena, please present uh, your book uh, for us. Uh, and as usual, uh, uh, you, you spend uh, half of our time and then we have a uh, quarter of an hour for questions and comments afterwards. Uh, and as always, please use the chat or the Q&A tool and I will moderate your comments and questions after Lena's talk. So, Lena, the word is yours. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, I will start by sharing my screen. Share. There we go. Right. Uh, thank you so much for the, attend the, the invitation to attend this virtual lunch seminar. It's very nice to at least virtually be back in Oslo again. As Kristen said, I have a Norwegian prehistory, but now I'm back not only in my native country, but even in my native town or my hometown where I grew up, Växjö. And I added a map here so that everyone knows exactly where I am right now and a view, <laughs> summer view of the Linnaeus University where I am currently a professor uh, of art history and visual studies. I am happy to have been given the opportunity to speak about one of my main research preoccupations for the last 10 years or so, namely saints relics and the use and function of saints relics in medieval religious devotion in the Scandinavian countries. And as Christine mentioned, the immediate reason for uh, my speaking today is the publication of this book on the topic last year in Swedish. It's an effort to collect and present what is known about relics and the way they were used in a Nordic setting uh, during the Middle Ages. It's based on the various sources that I could dig up uh, Still existing relics, of course, is a primary source. There still are uh, at least 340 relics existing in the churches and primarily perhaps in the museums. And a major collection uh, in that regard is the Turku or the Orbo Cathedral in Finland, which boasts a collection of close to 100 relics that were found uh, in the early uh, 20th century, hidden away. 
and there is also in the National Museum in Copenhagen in Denmark around 75 leaden boxes for altar relics, which of course also is a source that tells us about the existence of relics, even though the content in many cases in these boxes have, has disappeared. There are also preserved containers for relics, a source in themselves to the existence of relics. Uh, there are three large saint shrines in Scandinavia. I will return to these in a minute. There are uh, some 40 reliquaries, caskets, relic caskets. You see one of them on the lower right uh, photo, whole or in parts. There are four arm reliquaries. I need not perhaps explain what that is. There is one wooden head reliquary in the shape of a head of a female saint. There are a number of reliquaries containers made from textile, interesting in itself. There is a silver figurine, which you see also on the photo uh, on the, in the mid left column from the Linköping Horde. There are a couple of crystal ostensories as they are called, where the relic was held in a crystal chamber. There is an ivory pix. There are a couple of cabinets for relics. You see one of them in the lower uh, left uh, photo. There are 23 sculptures, wooden sculptures, crucifixes, Madonna saint sculptures with cavities for relics in the head or in other uh, places. Uh, and in some cases, even the relics have been found still uh, intact inside the sculpture. And there are at least 50 pieces of jewelry, pendant crosses or capsules for relics. There is also written source material that I have been using. There are lists of relics from a number of cathedrals and abbey churches that belong to their treasuries. There are a unique source material, the Icelandic Maldaga cartularies that list the possessions of the Icelandic churches in the Middle Ages, a fantastic source for anything that has to do with, with uh, things in churches in Iceland. There are letters and wills where relics are donated, uh, given to churches by privates. There are in Finland and Sweden confiscation protocols from the Reformation when uh, reliquaries were confiscated and melted down. And there are some early modern antiquarian reports about reliquaries or even relics still existing in the 17th century in churches. And on a more general level, there are instructions for consecrations of altars, for processions and for the showing of relics at yearly relic feasts that are interesting in this, con in this context. There are also saints' lives, biographies, and miracle collections where relics, the relics of the saints play an important part. And please note that I don't take interest primarily in the reliquaries, the containers for, relic for relics that would perhaps otherwise be expected to be the main focus of interest for an art historian. But what I was curious about was the relics and as Christian uh, mentioned, I found out 10 years ago that not very much was written on that topic up till then, not in Scandinavia and not that much internationally either. And since I started out on my relic explorations, uh, relic studies have boomed. Uh, there have been exhibitions, there have been books, and in November, the first yearly relic symposium will take place, we hope, in situ in Porto in Portugal, very exciting. 
So I started out with lots of questions on the existence of relics and the role relics played in medieval devotional life. Some of the questions got answered, not all of my questions. Uh, on some aspects of relics, the sources simply don't give enough information to my frustration. And in order to keep this sufficiently brief, and one problem with Zoom is that you don't see the time, so you just have to warn me if, if I take too long. But I have listed a few questions and I will outline the answers as a way of giving you an idea of the line of reasoning of the book. So my first question then is, what is a relic? A relic is a physical object that remains as a memorial of a departed saint. It's a part of the body or part of the clothes worn by the saint or of the saint's instrument of, of martyrdom. A relic leaves material proof of the saint's continued presence among the faithful on earth. It's, it's a pledge or deposit that guarantees the saint's persistent involvement in the earthly community. And the saint was believed to be literally present in the relic, whereas his or her soul had been taken up to heaven. Uh, the physical remains are still here and offer a channel of communication for the faithful through which to appeal to the saint as intercessor and helper in times of need. So the living saint was present in the relics. And my main interest lay uh, in the book, not on singular famous relics or, or the large collections of the cathedrals. I deal with these as well, but uh, what I was uh, in particular fascinated about was the existence of relics in perfectly normal parish churches and in the lives of a common parishioner. So that was my next question. What did an ordinary medieval parish church possess in the way of relics? And this is one of the fields where the sources are disappointingly sparse. We, or few, uh, we know that relics were always, almost always deposited in the altar when it was consecrated or in, one, in the altars when they were consecrated. The church could have more than one altar in the sepulchrum or the altar grave in the middle of the altar table. Occasionally, or perhaps often, a parish church could also possess relics outside of the altar. And this is a conclusion that can be drawn from, from the 40-something reliquaries of various shapes that, that have survived from parish churches and also uh, the Icelandic Maldaga that I mentioned, where, where containers for relics are uh, listed in at least 60 of the, in all 450 churches that existed in Iceland in the Middle Ages. Who supplied these relics uh, was one of my most burning questions. What was the apparatus or the infrastructure for supplying relics to the altars of the thousands of churches that were built and consecrated during the Middle Ages. Where did all these relics come from? And from how were they acquired? From whom were they acquired and distributed? And regrettably, all I can say is that the evidence points towards the bishops, which is not a big surprise because it was the bishops who consecrated the churches and, and uh, performed the ritual where the relics were deposited and sealed up in the altars. But how and from whom the bishops acquire the relics, if they had perhaps a stock of relics in the cathedral available for whenever one was needed, I simply don't know. I would have loved to know, but it's just nothing to use in order to try and answer that question. No sources tell us that. 
Now, what do we know about the larger saint shrines? More, uh, I would say, than about the common kind of relics. Shrines with an entire saint's body or most of an entire saint's body were the treasured crown jewels of the relic collections of the major church institutions, mainly the cathedrals. In fact, all uh, of the Scandinavian cathedrals, with one or two exceptions, possessed of a shrine where two pilgrims traveled in order to seek help or make penance and give thanks for help received. The three shrines actually exist to this day in Turku Cathedral in Odense, uh, in the lower row uh, banner with various relic uh, items, and then also two uh, shrines in Odense in Denmark. And there are also various mentions and descriptions in written sources that give an idea of what the shrines of St. Olaf in Nidaros and of St. Eric of Sweden in Uppsala, what they looked like, although they don't exist anymore. One interesting observation is that the shrine as, as such in several cases was supplemented with a separate reliquary for the head, where the head was kept. Sometimes also separate containers for one or both arms. This might seem very odd, but as it turns out, it was common practice on the continent and also in England. A separate head reliquary was the rule rather than the exception in the case of shrines for major saints. Presumably for ritual reasons, uh, the ceremonies surrounding the veneration of the saint could be staged in a more complex and spectacular manner with a head reliquary, perhaps arm reliquaries that could be carried about in processions and so on. In contrast then to the larger and heavier shrines that were perhaps fixed on their plinths. Or perhaps they weren't uh, because it is documented in several sources that St. Olaf's shrine in, in uh, Nidaros was taken out and carried in processions at, at yearly feasts. Although there is a 16th century account that reports that it was so heavy that it required, required 60 men to carry it. And the Old Norse uh, saints sagas and miracle collections provide interesting glimpses of how the devotees interacted with the, with the shrines. And it's, it's evident that the closer one got, the better was the chance of healing for instance, in the case of sicknesses. So there was a person who suffered from toothache who, in Linköping in Sweden. He kissed the grave of the saintly bishop of Linköping, Nikolaus Hamani, and then he was rid of this toothache. Ailing children were laid upon the grave of Bishop Brynolf of Skara, also Sweden, and they were healed. And to wake overnight or, or sleep in the sanctuary close to the shrine also brought healing in a number of reported cases. And my last question, what was the attitude of the church authorities towards the veneration of relics? Well, tolerant and pragmatic would be the best way, I think, to characterize the position taken by the church. There is no formal theology or doctrinal system of theory regarding relics, and they aren't obligatory or necessary in any way other than in the altars. Uh, but the practice to venerate the remains of holy people, holy persons, it existed since the early days of Christianity, and it was tolerated and accepted as long as it was performed in an orderly manner that didn't transgress what was acceptable and proper. In 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council 
declared that it was the prerogative of the Pope to decide who was to be venerated as a saint or not. And this decision developed then in the later Middle Ages into the increasingly regulated process of canonization. But up until then, up until 1215, the formal acceptance of a deceased individual as a saint had been promulgated by the bishops. And that was when the bones were taken from the original grave of a saint to, to a more dignified resting place, a so-called translatio. And these acts in all probability functioned as more or less retrospective confirmations of already existing cults that had developed among the lay towards individuals with saintly reputations. And a question that often arises is what about fake relics? Uh, the church took a pragmatic stance with regard also to fakes. It was a well-known fact that false relics existed. Sometimes the church did take action. There is a letter that was issued in the early 1200s by the Danish Archbishop Andreas Sunesen, and he forbade the carrying about of false relics on the marketplace in Skaner, in Scania, which is uh, South Sweden. And people had their doubts in the Middle Ages too. There is an episode in the biography of an Icelandic bishop, saintly bishop. He used to bless people with relics that he carried about. And there was a skeptical layperson who said that he couldn't know if these were bones from a saint or from a horse, so he would not kiss them. But overall, the church was broad-minded and rarely intervened when, for instance, two church institutions claimed to own the same relic. It was for God to decide who was right and who was wrong. And if someone happened to address his prayers or her prayers to relics that afterward turned out to come from another saint than the one presumed, or even to human remains that didn't come from a saint at all or from a horse, <laughs> there was no harm done because God always looked favorably upon a prayer uttered with good intentions. Thank you.